0: As we're getting going, can you guys do me a favor? Just give a little clap for our outdoor venue, our online people. Yes, thank you. You guys, we love you. We see you, and we're glad you're here. Uh, one more time for our outer space venue. Come on, guys. No, I'm just kidding. We don't have one of those. But one day, maybe, the way things are going, Elon Musk going to be up there, and there's going to be a church one day, probably. I don't know. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. We're talking about Philippians masterclass, and I'll tell you the backstory really quick. We said we want to build our church on just a few things, and so kids and students and discipleship or a couple of those things, but we said we want to be a church with a high view of God's word. We want to lift up scripture and let the words in this book be our guide. And so we said, hey, instead of doing a series about God's word and the power of God's word, hey, what if instead we just get into the word and and so we're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through this book called Philippians. And we said, as we go, we'll learn how to study the Bible. And so first lesson last week is context is king, if you want to understand a passage of the Bible, or in this case, a whole book of the Bible, understanding that book's context brings the book to life. It helps you understand what's actually going on and what's being communicated. And in Philippians, our context is simply this. This is a letter from a guy named Paul, who is a Jesus follower and missionary and church planter to a church that he planted in Philippi. If you're wanting to know the story of this church, you can go to the book of Acts chapter 16. It'll show you the whole backstory. This church is cool because it's made up uh, of some jailers, some former convicts, some merchants, and some of the baddest women in the New Testament. They are just this lovely group of Jesus followers. So we're reading real mail that was sent to him. We believe this mail was inspired by the Holy Spirit. God breathed this through Paul to these people. Uh, We also said that Paul has now been imprisoned For his faith in Rome. Uh, A little more context. We looked at key themes last week. So if if you feel like, holy cow, what did I miss? Don't worry. You just missed last week. We went over these things. Themes that we're going to be seeing over and over and over. Jesus over everything. Deep faith. Deep joy. And there's purpose through pain. And so we're going to watch those themes unfold week after week after week as we're in Scripture. Now that we're all caught up and up to date, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the opening paragraphs of this letter and then we're going to dive in and see what it means for us. So Philippians 1 verses 1 through 11, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God every time I remember you in all of my prayers for you. I always pray with joy because I know of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this if you're an underliner and you're following along in scripture, you got your you version. tap this one because it is good. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you. Since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains for defending and confirming the gospel, he's referencing that he's in jail right now, all of you share with God's, in God's grace with me. I can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Okay, last paragraph, we're almost there. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless For the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, as we study this section, we need to lean into the idea that this letter is coming from prison, okay? This is a dark dungeon, and at the same time, if you remember we were talking last week, at the same time, Paul finds himself imprisoned and yet mentions joy and rejoicing more frequently than any other book that he ever wrote. Joy and rejoice show up 16 times in four chapters. That's easy enough for a dumb dumb like me to do the division and know that's four times per chapter. There is joy in this prison situation that he finds himself in. So apparently, this faith that Paul has acquired is a faith that can thrive in the dungeon. We're going to pull from this letter today and we're going to talk about building a faith that can thrive in the dungeon. Now, as we get going, don't miss this. Don't overlook how much you need faith. We throw the word around all the time, but it is imperative to walking as a Jesus follower in the year 2022. You need faith if you want to find it in, in a world changing like ours where the way we do commerce and the way we do uh, church and the way we do workouts and the way we do school and the way we do education and the way we do the marketplace and the way we do jobs changes on a month by month basis. You need faith if you want something strong and secure you can build your life on in a world that offers a thousand false promises you need faith if you want to build your life and taste something that's truly real. I want my children to have faith before I send them in a world that is designed to rob them of their innocence and their confidence. If you want to leave a legacy of strength and love to your children and your children's children, you need faith if you're going to do that. Can we agree we need faith? Give me a thumbs up and I'll move on. Thumbs up. We need faith. But we need a faith that can thrive in the dungeon. Now hear me. We are not probably going to be put in actual dungeons for our faith in this lifetime. But there's plenty of dungeon to go around. When you turn on a TV or you do any looking around the world and you realize all the statistics about faith in our country and the way that it's backsliding and it's shrinking and churches are turning it in and people are quitting, you need faith to make it through that dungeon. When you look at the world behind the walls of depression, You need faith to make it through that kind of dungeon. When you watch your children deal with an affliction that you can't fix on your own, oh, there's some dungeon in that. When you've done everything right to make a relationship work, but the relationship doesn't work out how you wanted, there's some dungeon in that. Believe it or not, in our culture, apathy is probably the dungeon that is taking the most Jesus followers captive. And and although apathy comes clothed in affluence, and a nice vehicle, and a secure neighborhood, apathy is probably one of the most dangerous dungeons because it will rock you to sleep and you won't even realize you're trapped. We want to look at these words and we want to build a resilient faith. We want to build a faith that's not going to be here and gone with the changing of the next news cycle. We want to build in a faith that is going to carry us through the next election season no matter what happens. We want to build a faith that is going to endure. You don't know what's coming next, but you could build a faith today that will see you through. I don't know what cells are growing in my body I don't know what's going to come next. I don't know what my children are going to face. I don't know what they're going to add to the curriculum in public school. But what I can do is build a faith that is strong and resilient today. So no matter what comes in the future, me and my children and my family and my household and my church have what we need. We want a faith that can flourish in the dungeon. And so I want to give you three building blocks today that are right here in our text Three building blocks of a faith that will thrive in the dungeon. Let's go back to our text. The first one is found in verse 9. It says this, My prayer is this, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Building block number one is love. Now, we're studying this text, so I'll give you a little of the background and stuff. The, the interesting thing about Paul praying for the Philippian church to grow in their love is that the Philippian church was one of the most vibrant and healthy faith communities that Paul writes to in the New Testament. Okay, so if you studied the Bible before, you heard the Genesis, or not, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Corinthians, Romans, those were all churches. And most of them were pretty messed up. And you got the the Corinthian church, Paul has to write them letters and say, Hey, by the way guys incest is wrong, and you shouldn't be getting drunk during communion. There were some messed up churches, but the Philippian church, they were blameless, they were pure, they were generous, they were full of love, and yet Paul goes, I want even more love in your hearts than I've already seen. I want your love to abound, and see, this is a common Christian concept. Yeah, love God and love people, but I don't want us to get so familiar with this, like like that we forget the, you know, love, okay, like it sounds like if you're, in Sunday school or you're in kids church and the answer if you don't know the answer in community group it's either love or Jesus or love Jesus but I don't want to get so familiar here that we forget that this is an anchor this is this is the cornerstone of an authentic faith one of Jesus' closest followers John would later write in 1 John 4:10, this is love And don't miss this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Time out. So we put love on the screen. I am not saying the foundation of your faith is to leave this place and to let people go before you when you pull up to the stop sign at the same time and treat everybody really, really nice. What I'm talking about here is first being in intimate contact with the fact that you were first loved by God when you had nothing to offer Him whatsoever. The beginning of faith and the foundation of a faith that will last through the dungeon There's intimate contact with the fact that when we had nothing to offer, nothing going for us, some of us were in the middle of rebellion, sin, and shame, God sees you and He loved you right there. My ministry story, I, I, some of you guys know this about me, some of you don't, but my ministry story is kind of interesting. It's not the traditional path into becoming, it, nobody's more surprised that I'm here right now than me. Let me just put it that way. And then my mother. And so I was 18 years old, a rebellious, arrogant, empty moron. And I had an encounter with Jesus that changed everything about me. I have a vivid memory, Uh, this PE teacher that had been my wrestling coach through middle school and he moved up to high school and I moved up to high school and I had found Jesus and he had confronted me on some of my substance abuse issues when I was younger and all kinds of other stuff, he was a part of my life. He stopped me one day after Jesus and goes, Matt, we got to know, what happened? You know how the teachers, some of you are teachers and you'd be talking about the kids and the teachers, they talk about, it's like their own reality show. And so Welford comes to me one day and he goes, Matt, what happened? And there was no other answer for me in that moment other than I found Jesus. He loved me when I didn't deserve it. Everything now has changed and I just want the world to know about him. About three days after I found Jesus, I started a Bible study for a couple guys that were two years younger than me. And and then somebody asked me, hey, you're doing this Bible study. Would you mind just leading it as a small group at our church? And I said, sure. And then they they said, okay, at a small group. They need somebody to teach the Bible. Could you just like look into the scriptures and teach them a little bit? And I said, sure. And then I just decided, it. <laughs> I just, if it was about helping people find the one who transformed my life, I just want to do that. Turns out that's what pastors do. And so I was being discipled by a guy named Jacob Breeze, and we would sit in the basement of this, this little old lady from our church, her name was Ruthie Hoff, and she would make us waffles, and we would study Jesus, and that is a great way to establish your faith. Jesus and waffles will get you there. And he was teaching me about the life of Christ, and he's like, Matt, what do you want to do with all this? And I was like, I just want people to meet Jesus, and he goes, that's what pastors Pastors do? I go, I, I don't really know any pastors. And, and he was actually studying to become a pastor at a seminary called Lincoln Christian University. And he goes, You need to check out Lincoln. I was like, okay. Go, what, what do we even do at, 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 a, at a, a seminary? And he goes, I'll tell you, don't worry about all that. Let's just take one step at a time. But there's this gentleman at the seminary. His name is Dr. Marion Henderson. This is Doc. He goes, I got to tell you about this guy. He's the Life of Christ professor and everything you're hearing me say about Jesus, I got from him. And if you're serious about telling people about Jesus, you need to come study under Doc. Doc was 81 years old when I visited the campus of Lincoln Christian University my senior year. And he led us in Bible study. And he was older and he had great stories and he was reading real slow. And I was like, man, is this, what is the deal? Then I glance over at his Bible that was just tattered and marked up and highlighted and underlined and bookmarked. And then I realized he was reading directly from the original Greek New Testament and translating it as he read it to us. And he told us stories about ministry and stories about following Jesus and stories about the life of Christ. And he made it come to life that day. This was a campus visit. And I said, Doc, I'm in. If I come to this school, can you be my New Testament professor? And he said, young man, I've got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel, so if you come, come quick and sign up for my class right away. And so I did. Signed on the line. And I go and and I sign up up for Life of Christ 1, the whole thing, first semester, got to do it. They give me my schedule. You know how you sign up for the thing and they give you all the classes back and they're like, never the classes you want. And they didn't put me in docs. Life of Christ class. They put me in Dr. Fred Johnson's class. And so I walked down with my little class schedule. I sat down in the registrar's office and I'm like, you guys, there has been a mistake. I'm supposed to be in Doc's class. We talked about it. He's got one foot in the grave and another on a banana peel. We don't have a lot of time on our hands. I got to be in Doc's class and I love you guys, but I'm not leaving until you fix this. So I sat there. I sat there until they made it right. And sure enough, they're like, okay, you can be in Doc's class. And and sure enough, other people who actually knew about the school knew it better. And so, Doc, it was this, this big lecture hall. And it was stuffed to the gills. And there's people sitting around the walls. And Doc would walk. And he would talk. And he would tell stories about the life of Jesus. And he would tell stories about ministry. And he had gotten so old and advanced in his years, he was hard of hearing. But he knew the life of Jesus and how to teach the life of Jesus so well. Kids would raise their hands and ask questions, and he couldn't hear them, but he knew the content so well. He goes, oh yeah, usually in point seven C, somebody asks about this. So you could raise your hand, and he would just start answering, even though he didn't hear you in the first place. And I'll never forget one day in Doc's class, he said, young men and women, never forget this. There is but one thing that will help you endure in the faith and ministry. And it is not a desire to help people. It's not a desire to change the world. It's not even a love for your neighbor. The only thing that will build a faith that can endure is your love of Jesus Christ and staying in intimate contact with the way he first loved you. Momentum, that means underneath ministry, serving, good intentions, quiet times, your prayer life, your Bible reading, being a great Christian spouse, being a great Christian parent, underneath any spiritual discipline or anything else must sit intimate contact with the way God first loved you through Christ. If your faith is built on anything else, it is not a faith that will last that's the kind of faith you need love to make it through the dungeon. Time out. Let me give you one straight from this passage. If you are 16 to 26 years old, this is for you. Let's go back to that, that Philippians 9. This is my prayer that your love may abound, more and more knowledge of death and insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless to the day of Christ. Hold on to this. 16 to 26 years old. He says, I don't just want you full of this love. I want you to be able to take this love, the life of Jesus, who he is, what he stands for, and I want you to be able to look around the world around you through that lens and discern what you let into your life and heart. Because you guys know this just as well as I do. There is a lot of bad advice masquerading as great ways to live. Here's the phrases. Oh, you could just do you. Hey, hey, I don't care what, oh, she, she's this, do you. You can't build a marriage that's going to last on do you. It's okay as long as you're not hurting, come on, say it. It's okay as, you're, as long as you're not hurting anyone. Well, this is my truth. If it feels right, it can't be wrong. Guys, these are imposters. What a Paul would say is, I want you to know the love of God so well that it's like a filter. And if it is not the love and the truth and the way and the life that are found in Jesus, you would not let it take up residence in your soul. Foundation number one is love. Number two is this. It's confidence in God's endurance confidence in God's endurance this is our communion verse I'll bring it back to you this is Paul and he's praying and he says I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for you I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus now you you guys get this one more than you might realize You ever been doing a DIY project, you you were remodeling a room or you were fixing something around the house or you were changing something and you uncover whoever owned that house before you just did a terrible job. You ever see that? You're doing the bathroom and the bathroom wires are crossed and you turn on the thing and then all of a sudden the garbage disposal goes on in the kitchen and you're like, who did this? You ever, uh, we, we, gosh, I had like a million stories about this, like from the house that we're in right now, and you just look at it, and I've made a, con- I grew up in construction, and I've made a commitment, like no one's coming into a place after I owned it and went, what the heck is this guy doing? I, I just, that is, that is not going to happen on my watch, but you get what I'm saying, but what the verse here is saying is that's not our God. He's got a vision for you. He's got a plan for you. He saved you. He saved you from your sin, from the consequences of your sin, which is death. But he didn't just save you from your sin. He saved you into a purpose. And he's got a plan for you that he's written by hand and, he, and on top of that he saved you in order to turn you into this is, this is called spiritual formation or sanctification he wants to turn you into the image of Jesus and he is not going to leave that work undone the word it on there it, it is literally God is going to take personal responsibility he's not going to clock out early He's not going to leave it half done. He's not going to cut corners. He is going to carry you all the way to the finish line, which is the day of Christ's return. Jesus' follower, oh my gosh, here's why you have to get this. The longer you journey with Christ, the more you're going to be tempted to take that work on yourself. The further you get removed from your baptism and the grace of God, the more tempted you are going to be to say, oh, that was so cool. All right, now, God, what do you want me to do? Okay, let's go over here, and i got to fix this thing about me. And, man, there's so much more that i like to accomplish. And, oh, dang, I didn't mean to yell at them this week, but, oh, gosh, i got to get on that thing. Don't worry, God, I'll come back to you. When I get it, the temptation and the tool of our enemy is to convince you that it's your job to, to do all this stuff for God and become everything he wants you to be on your own. Do you guys know about the time in Scripture when God put David, King David, in check? This is this is, this is man after God's own heart, reprimanded by God because God loved him too much to do this. Somewhere around uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, David has come. He, it, this is like a long journey, and he, he went from the field to David and Goliath. He beats Goliath. He goes on the run. He's in Saul's courts, and... In the courts, he's, you know, growing and becoming everything God wants him to be. Saul tries to kill him, but he runs and he flees, and then he comes back, and he has all these military victories, and now his throne is established. He's sitting on the throne. He's got a kingdom. He's got people who come and go. When he says, come and go, and then he looks at God, and he goes, God, look at all this. This is, this is awesome. Oh my gosh, we got a throne now, and we got a kingdom, and we got battles, and we got victories. Tell you what, God, this isn't even fair. I'm so thankful for you, God. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build you a temple. I mean, I've got a king, I've got a palace, I've got a throne, and you're, you don't have anything. Let me build you a temple, God, which is a great intention, but listen to God's answer. Second Samuel 7, 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'm going to raise up an offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build the house for my name, which I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. See, God loved David too much to let David hijack the story. Because the second that David pulls that pen from God's hand and says, thank you so much, let me start writing, you inherit a weight you were never made to carry. And so God stops him and says, David, get the story straight. The story is not what you can do for me. The story has always been about my faithfulness and love for you. And Jesus follower, we have to keep that story straight to this day. Otherwise, you will quit in the dungeon. If the story is what you can do for God, you will get to a dungeon and eventually that dungeon will be the end of your faith. When you knew everything right for six months and then everything goes wrong, you'll quit. When you give the relationship all you got and it still doesn't work out, If the faith is about what you can do for God to please Him, you will eventually quit. When you get to sin that you cannot just pray away, you will eventually quit if the story is about what you can do for God and not God's faithfulness to you. I know this personally because I've quit before. I remember in college, I was so compromised with sexual sin and I could not get rid of it. Accountability and prayer and groups and friends and scripture. And I was, lo- I was fighting for my life and losing in real time. And the whole time the shame was just growing. And I quit. This is, I was in that seminary that I was telling you about. I was on my way to becoming a pastor. I did not just quit ministry. I quit Christianity. I was like, hey, God, I mean, God, I love you, and I'm appreciative, and I'm, fa- hey, this has been really, really good, but I am tired of letting you down. I can't do this anymore. And God said, good. I said, no, I don't think you heard me. I'm done. I quit being a Christian, because I can't do it. And he said, Good. Maybe now it can be about my faithfulness to you and not what you think you can do for me. Everything changed. Oddly enough, the battle with the sin was won just after that. As it turns out, sin cannot stand in the face of perfect love. You need a foundation. You need that confidence in God's perseverance. If you're going to thrive in the dungeon, last one. You've got to recognize that our time is short. Recognize that our time is short. We get this twice in this little section of Scripture. He mentions in verse 6 and verse 10, the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ there could be a whole sermon. I'm going to save it because we've got a lot of ground to cover in this book. But suffice it to say, a day is coming. And if you want a double-edged sword that will, in fact, cut the crap out of your life and at the same time encourage you through the dungeon, it is the fact that a day is coming when Christ will return and it's coming rapidly. You go through the New Testament and it says, on this day there's going to be sudden dis- destruction. It says Jesus himself will execute judgment. The Son of Man will come like a flash of lightning. On that day, there's going to be repayment, judgment, and punishment. A day is coming, and it's coming faster than you might think. One of the most frightening Day of Christ passages in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 3. It says, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw." their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying there is coming a day where you're done playing games, You can't wear a mask anymore. You can't hide it. You can't fake it. And the quality of your faith in Jesus Christ will be exposed. And that day is coming more quickly than you realize You might be going, I'm a young person, heck, I'm middle-aged, I got at least 40 years in me, you know, they've been thinking Christ is going to come back for 2,000 years right now, he hasn't come back, what are you talking about? Do you know most theologians believe in a soul sleep theory? You ever been on an airplane, you fall asleep and all of a sudden the thing's landing, the next thing you know you're just there at your destination? Do you know most theologians believe when your life here on earth ends? the next thing you know, you are at this day. It's coming faster than you think. So Paul would ask, are you living prepared for this day? Are you preparing your children for this day? Are your priorities in alignment with this day? Are you building a faith with this day in mind? Because one day, that's all that will matter. And at the same time, this day is a great encouragement that will see us through the dungeon. Theologian Daryl Harrison wrote, if you're a Christian, here are six words that will impact your life for the better. For the joy set before him, that's Hebrews 12.2. If you can get those words into your heart and mind, you can endure any offense or disappointment knowing that your true reward lies beyond this world. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying when you come to understand that this day is coming, the trouble you experience here and now in the dungeon begins to fade. Revelation 21 would say on this day, now that God's dwelling place is among His people and He's going to be dwelling with them. They'll be His people and God Himself will be their God who'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and He who is seated, seated at the throne said, I'm making everything new. On that day, there's no more cancer, no more miscarriage, no more betrayal, disappointment, fear, anxiety, lies, or depression. Romans 8 would say, the glory that you will see on that day cannot even be compared with the pain you experience now. When you prepare for that day, when you live in view of that day, you have what you need for the dungeon. We started this thing. This is between us. my My oldest daughter, Lucy, went into fourth grade, and man, she got her tail kicked, about as tough as the COVID situation could be on a kid and transitioning and all this stuff like I mean she we homeschooled her and and so she went from second grade here to fourth grade there. Fourth grade, already a time that's tough for kids, and then she switched schools so she didn't have her, I mean, everything just right out from underneath her. She was getting her tail kicked. And it was so hard to watch as her dad. And so we started something to get her through. It's called Oreo Fridays. You passed me the pack, babe. Sorry, I brought a visual aid. Double stuff, baby. And go, here's a deal, babe. No matter what happens this week, you don't have to worry. Because Oreo Friday is just around the corner. And we're gonna load you down with Oreos and you're gonna have them at school. And it worked. Oh, she's flourishing. I did not know it It could be this simple. But imagine that day. It's not Oreo Friday. It's the wedding feast of the Lamb. The perfect presence of your God. More love running through every cell in your body than you could ever imagine. Your life as it was always meant to be, in the never-ending presence of your heavenly Father. It's coming. And no matter how bad it gets here, that day is coming. That day will get you through the dungeon.